Welcome again, ladies and gentlemen, to the garage. I'm Luke. I'm Nick. And today, we have a very special guest. It's Johnny Critchfield. <laughs> yes. John, as we like to call him. Hey, well, we really want to thank you, John, for uh, coming on the show today. John's story is, is one that, that's really interesting and really, really relevant to to a lot of people. Um, I'm sure, honestly, if you're listening to this, you probably know someone in some way that's been affected by a drug addiction by heroin in particular and pain pills. I mean, if you don't know someone directly, then you know someone indirectly or maybe you struggled yourself. And so John has a, a crazy life story um, of, of a heroin addiction and we, we really wanted to get him on the show to share that. Most definitely. Um, and so, I mean, we didn't just find him on the street. Nick, how do we know John? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I met <laughs> Why John. Why didn't we invite him into our group? <laughs> <laughs> I met John um, working at a pizza place called Joey's Pizza. Um, we kind of hit it off initi- immediately. Uh, I think, you know, at being believers, we just had that connection instantly and have, have walked some of the same miles in, 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 in life and just really connected. John actually is, is my roommate now. Um, he's a great guy and, and lo- loves Jesus and has struggled a lot and has overcome a lot. Um, and just a really fun guy to hang out. You know, it's funny. You and I were actually brought together when someone was talking negatively about a church, and we kind of looked at each other like, eh, "Oh, that's true. Nope. <laughs> no names. No <laughs> names yeah, here. But no, that did happen. We're not going to be <laughs> dropping any names. <laughs> yeah. But we no both kind of looked at each other and we're like, yeah. Like, someone no, said something about like how much other. a church sucked, and I was like, and weird, you know, rumors that go around around churches oh, yeah. like this had happened. And like, it, it, right. yeah, it doesn't. It'd be all over Google. And then we were just hit it off immediately. <laughs> right. I love that. But they, John, yeah. we can sit here and talk all da- about you. But why don't you? Tell yeah, us let's who get you to are. me. Let's yeah. let's step it up. You tell us who you are and, um, and, and all that. So I'm I'm John. I uh, I have lived in the Springs for a year and a half now. Moved down here from Denver, but originally from Michigan. Um. I moved down here with a company that I worked for. It was actually a sober living community, and they had a house down here and needed someone to whip people in shape. And in the first you know, year and a half, two years of my sobriety, um, it's really about you know focusing on yourself and the foundation of yourself and building your relationship with God, uh, but also, as we say in the 12-step community, getting out of self and helping others. Right. Uh, so I moved down here working for a sober living company. I lived in the house. I was a manager, and I was also a drug and alcohol counselor, and I was responsible for keeping 8 to 12 men's lives you know, under wraps so they didn't jump off the the bandwagon right um you know i think where my story starts as a kid just like the majority of drug addicts you know we all kind of experiment a little bit as a as a teenager Mm -hmm. or you know i was 12 and started smoking a lot of pot um but i quickly found out that pot just didn't do for me what other things might be able to do and I just wanted to branch out you know I grew up in a very white collar area um, very wealthy people but I didn't grow up per se in a very wealthy household I grew up with a single mom I had a little sister Uh, my dad took off when I was about 11 Um, a lot of trauma when I was a kid from, you know, just having daddy issues to sexual abuse to, you know, all that good stuff, being bullied and, um, you know, the anxieties that kind of came with it um, led me to drugs. Uh, when I was 15, of course, a doctor prescribed me his Xanax and that's where it started. And, you know, pills were a lot easier to get, I think, 10 or 15 years ago when we were all growing up than they really are now. Um, 
And it was all about really drowning myself out. And I didn't have anything to follow. Um, and I think we all know that if you're living life by your own rules, uh, you're probably not going to succeed. Uh, you know, we can live the way we want to live, but you still have to follow some sort of template. And I didn't have God in my life. You know, I, I wasn't allowing him in. Right. I want, I want to stop you for a second. And what's really interesting is I want to go back to this initial encounter with Xanax, mm-hmm. uh, mainly because it's su- it is such a just, I don't know the word, just it's glor- It's a glorified drug right totally. now yeah. in this society. Oh, Papa Zan. I mean, you got mm-hmm. rappers like Lil Xan. Kids are all doing Xanax. All these rap songs about Xanax, 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 Xanax. And you're saying... That that was the starting point. That was... Let's talk about that for a second. Where it popped off. Um, for people that don't know, Xanax is a benzodiazepine. And what a benzo does is it essentially is a tranquilizer. So the anxiety that comes from the chemical imbalance within a human's brain, it's essentially zapped. But it isn't you know diminished. It's not taken away. It's literally you're just numbed from it. So... You take the Xanax, you feel instant relief, you know, within 20 minutes, but it's, it's still in your head somewhere. Mm-hmm. So when you don't have the Xanax, that's where the addiction starts so quickly because you still have the anxiety. But when the Xanax wears off or any benzo, it's the anxiety comes back harder. And so you need more Xanax. And on top of that, you take the Xanax and, you know, you drink a beer with it instead of having to drink a six pack or 10 beers or whatever the bros do. Um, you drink one or two and you feel like Superman. You can go talk to that girl. You can, you know, go into the job and be very confident. And it was essentially like my, you know, it was my steroid. It was what it amped me up, right. you know, and so interesting. I never liked the taste of alcohol growing up. And while all my friends were drinking, I could go on a Friday night to a party and I could take a Xanax and I'm the life of the party. You know, I'm shaking hands and kissing babies and, you know, doing all of the above where they're drinking. But, you know, I'm sober because I'm on a prescription drug that I was prescribed by my doctor. So interesting. I want to come. I want to come back to that, but let's keep going. <laughs> let's keep going uh, on your story. Where do we? So basically, you know, that amped me up. Um, and that is kind of where, man, this story, Dwellin, uh, reflecting it, uh, it started getting worse when I was 15 or 16 growing up where I grew up, cocaine started coming around 16 years old. So that was 2002. Um, and people started working and most of my friend's parents were giving them money. So everyone kind of was flush with drugs Um, so I started doing a lot of cocaine to the point where, and, and mind you, I was a starting quarterback in high school. Like I was our quarterback. I was an athlete. Um, but the only way I felt like I actually fit in because I had such bad social anxiety was to be intoxicated of some sort. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, with some of the stuff that happened when I was a kid, <clears throat> it was all about, you know, as a quarterback, this ego kind of comes along with it. And I felt I had to fill that ego's, you know, the, the shoes that came with it. And I didn't, you know, I'm definitely a lot more introverted. And I think I've always been introverted, but I did these drugs to kind of be an extrovert and be out there. But now I'm realizing, like, I like time to myself or I like it in small little groups. Right. and. But I always wanted to be the life, and I always wanted to be the impressive human. I wanted to be the one who could just do things or had done them or is going to do them, you know, because I always wanted to have that story. Right. Oh, it was, nobody makes a, a movie about the star football player that just, like, hung out. No, absolutely not. And exactly, who yeah. just kicked back. Yeah. And uh, I I didn't want to be that guy. Yeah. You know, I want I kind of wanted to live in those shoes, too. Um. You know, I was incredibly insecure. And when you're that cocky and that arrogant and that egotistical and ego driven, you're definitely not going to look in the mirror and say, hey, dude, (laughs) you know, you don't really Mm -hmm. know to look at yourself. I mean, I I see kids now and I have to continuously remind myself you were like that. Mm -hmm. You were probably worse. You know, I might not have been as rude to my parents as a lot of these kids are now. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they're a little savages. (laughs) Um, you know, like we were, we weren't that charming, you know, we were really annoying too. 
and <clears throat> drugs kind of kept me going going to school because I, I I've had anxiety since you know I remember my first anxiety attack I was 11 or 12 years old and I had just moved to Atlanta and when we first moved there my mom would drive me to school every day and she would have to stop on the side of the road because I would I would throw up every morning oh my gosh and so and think about that I'm 12 years old in eighth grade and uh when I would get in trouble at school, you know, like I would have these anxiety bouts because I knew I was going to come home. My mom was going to be mm. pissed um, or whomever. And I just but the thing was, my my decision making was so bad as a kid that all this anxiety that I was experiencing, it, it kind of came from within because I was a terrible decision maker. You know, mm. as men, we're not the best decision makers as it is. But, you know, I was really bad as a kid. Well, I wouldn't say it's a. I mean, <clears throat> This is a podcast directed towards men, but <laughs> I'm going to be biased because I am of male. I'm, I'm a guy. Um, no, like you, you never, you didn't have anybody in your life to say no one. This is the kind of decision that a man makes. This is the kind of decision a boy in your shoes makes. This is how to be your age and be you. This is who you are. You didn't have any of that. No, I had a grandpa who was essentially my dad. But think about a grandfather. It's there's a huge gap there, mm -hmm. you know. And as much as he loved me, and as much as he just wanted just to be dad. my dad, you, you just want your dad, yep. you know, or you want a dad. And you know, you kind of envy other people's parents, and you see that. And then mm -hmm. there's this like this jealousy that you have. There's almost a resentment that kind of you know starts for your friends' dads because it's something you don't have. So. All of these issues are just balling up mm -hmm. and creating this thunderstorm from within. And when I was a sophomore in high school, uh, my mom just kind of had had enough and she sent me to a therapist. And seeing the stuff and the emotional, you know, trauma my mom was going through strictly because of me, because I, I wasn't a good kid. I was an asshole. I was just not a, I didn't think about anyone but myself it was me or the highway right and I saw this therapist and I'm like all right well I just got to be honest with him and I told him about how I had been sexually abused as a kid and legally therapists need to report that report, report it, it to your right. parents yeah. or law enforcement and he gave me the choice and uh you know as a 15 year old that's a pretty big decision yeah. Yeah. you know to give to someone and so I just tell my parents, I'll let my parents deal, you know, tell my mom, let her deal with it. And she was just destroyed, especially with who it was. And I'm not going to really say that. Um, but basically what had happened after that was I had to beg my family not to pursue charges because what's going to happen is I'm going to be the kid in high school that mm -hmm. had been molested right. and, uh, you know, being an athlete and stuff and knowing that if it was pursued in the courts, a lawyer would have been a friend's parent or someone at the school. And although names wouldn't have been said, it just would have happened. It, would, I, it, it, it always comes out. I didn't yeah. need an or want. And I, I look back and I think it was a good thing that we didn't pursue it at that age. The only ones that knew were my buddies. We all grew up on the same block and um, they kind of knew and it scared them. But, you know, when you're 14, 15 years old, you don't really know the extent of the emotional, you know, you know what it's no. doing to you. Yeah. So you, you, you experience this as a child, right. you sexually abused, which I'm sorry, you know, and, and that leads to this anxiety. Mm -hmm. And then that leads to you trying to fill this gap, this hole, and this lack of, of, of a father figure plays into it. You're trying to fill this hole. And so Xanax fills that doctor, hole. Doctor, you know, a doctor should not be, regardless, a doctor should not be prescribing a 15-year-old right. Xanax. So Xanax fills that hole. Totally. And so then you get the taste. Yeah. And, 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 and you're in. You don't realize it, though. Mm -hmm. So at this point, it's not a problem yet. You're just having fun and the you're getting The doctor's high not... You know, explaining to me that when I go in there every month or every other month and I, I'm willing if I was to think he probably increased my dosage every three months because I'd go in and my my prescription would be gone halfway through the month. Mm. So, you know, to give you guys an idea, it's in milligrams and, you know, I was doubling that every three months, the amount that he was giving me. Right. And so, but, but at this point, though, it's... 
It's just there. Fine. Yeah, fine. I'm You're still doing. I'm doing like fine in school. Yep. Um, I'm numb. You know, which like I couldn't deal with my emotions as it was. I was numb to everything around me. Um, nothing was affecting right. me. You're good though. You're, you're I just was good. getting high. I was so, just getting high in Xanax. So, but it wasn't getting high in my mind. Exactly. You're just you're just feeling good. You're having justified. A good time. What happened next? And uh, this kind of went on. The cocaine abuse started getting really bad. Mm-hmm. So you think about it. One drug is going to speed you up. The cocaine. The other one's going to bring you down. And so I was literally doing both of them with, you know, in the drug terms, it's a speed ball. Yep. So essentially your body and your heart's going crazy, but your mind is, you know, going one mile an hour. So I was, you know, cocaine was expensive. Um, I got a prescription to Adderall. Uh, so then I started to get hooked on amphetamines, right. um, taking Adderall. In college? Not yet. Okay. Not even, not even out of high school yet. Okay. So I'm a, when I first got Adderall, I was a junior. So 16, 17, um, every morning taking the exact thing. And my doctor, I had it, you know, I'd already learned how to play the doctors at this point Mm -hmm. to, Hey, I need this, you know, and Google was really starting to get big and you could Google, what do I say to a doctor to get this drug? They'll give you the exact, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. The exact, you know, things that you need and this is how you're going to get it. And then, then, then there's the the next drug. There's the Adderall. The Adderall is now there and still prescription stuff. Me, you know, I, I suffer from mental illness obviously, and I'm, I'm bipolar. Um, but those narcotics are just throwing me in a loop and when the Adderall was added although that was added to help me in school and things like that and to keep my attention it just it spiraled out of control this is when the drugs really started to affect my life I saw that this summer going into my senior year I got thrown out of my high school for doing something really stupid that was we'll just leave it at a very prejudiced thing that I did Mm -hmm. um something that just you know it was mean Mm um and that's when kind of people were like, maybe you're an addict, you know, maybe you're bipolar, maybe you're this, maybe you're that. But in my head, I wasn't admitting that. Yeah. Um, in my head, it was, I'm still like, the, I need this. My doctor's giving it to me. Um, left high school. Finally, I went back, got into another high school, graduated. Um, then went to college. And this is when stuff started getting a little crazy. Um you know, I had a spoon in my mouth and, you know, college was paid for, rent was paid for, and I got a weekly allowance. And that weekly allowance went to drinking and drugging. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I have always been a big proponent of medical marijuana and stuff like that. But back in the day, marijuana for me was just something that made me want to do other drugs. Mm. You know, it was like that step where, hey, I'm going to smoke weed until I get this, you know, or get that. Um, and... I was doing a tremendous amount of cocaine at this time in college. You know, I'm not around my parents. I don't have to worry about how I'm acting. Yeah. Uh, but there was the first time I remember laying in my bed, just really depressed. I don't have anything in my system. I'm withdrawing and I was alone. And that's, that's where you just kind of look around. You're like, all right, because what we say in the recovery game is you've got your finger pointed out, but you got five being pointed back at you. Right that was my life you know it was bad decision after bad decision but it was also drug fuel decisions you know it was about what i can do to get high and i'm 20 years old 19 or 20 years old what can i do to alter my mindset and my state of mind so i don't feel what i have you know the unfinished business that i had never dealt with or come to terms with um went to college And then after college, I just kept moving because, you know, drugs were there. I'm going to move here. Drugs were there. I'm going to move here. So ended up moving from Michigan to Atlanta again, and then Atlanta to Nashville, Nashville to Phoenix, Phoenix to Michigan, Michigan to to Vail. Chasing drugs? Uh, Running away from drugs. Okay. Uh, Everywhere I went, it was because I – it was a fresh start. Um, But at this point, you're still not – it hasn't hit the fan. I hadn't – it – rock bottom hadn't happened yet kept falling out the bottom the floor just kept you're like oh man and then whoop you fall into the ball pit right. you know you think you're at rock bottom <laughs> yeah. and you're like, oh. but it just keeps it and it can always get worse it's just when you get to that bottom it's like <laughs> all right am i gonna allow this to fall out or am i gonna climb myself out of here mm. and 
you know, still being in my lower 20s, you need to really, if you're going to look at yourself, I wouldn't have been able to get sober. I look at some of these kids that I I work 12 steps with and stuff now, and they're 18, 19, 20, 21. Like, I, I wouldn't have been able to do it mm. because I still had not in my life said, hey, I'm an addict. You know, it was. You're just having fun. I can control this, mm-hmm. but I you can't. Like, you can't. When you suffer from this disease, you, you don't have the ability to control it. And if I did, I would have stopped when I was 15. You know, right. So, so there's, a, there's a lie that you had to come to terms with or there's there's a lie that you're telling yourself mm-hmm. that you had to come to, to terms with. You, you do not. You're not truth, truthful with yourself about who you are, mm. you know, you and and when you're continuously lying and you don't realize that you're lying to yourself, that's where the drugs are coming in handy uh, because they are diminishing that feeling of guilt and that feeling of hatred towards yourself and they're numbing you out from it. So you don't realize, you know, this guilt and hatred that you have, you don't realize that it's, it's real. You think it's just stuff that comes and goes and that's not true. And I moved to Vail. That was 2010. Um, moved there in the winter. Um, basically just moved to ski bum skied at, and you know, this was a time in my life where, uh, you know, I was still prescribed to my Xanax. However, being a ski bum and out in the mountains, you know, you're out and about and you're living outside. I was working and skiing became my focus. Uh, but essentially what I was doing is, you know, I became addicted to skiing, which is much better than drugs. And it's a lot better of an addiction. It is, you know, at least I'm active, at least I'm out there. And, you know, the drug, the drug usage was definitely minimizing, but you're still trying to fill a hole, but still filling that void within. And, um, I hadn't, I just wasn't really dealing with it. And so I ended up on July 1st of 2012 i got in a one person accident on my motorcycle on i-70 in between vale and minturn going west i was cut off at like three in the morning happened to be wearing a helmet on my crotch rocket and um got cut off and uh flew 35 yards Mm -hmm. slid with the bike hit the center concrete pylon, mm. just blasted it and tried to stand up and realized I couldn't. I was done. You know, like my whole body, my body was crunched. Shut down mode. And the bike, you could see it. Like I took the same force as the bike. Um, the adrenaline was what tried to make me stand up and I couldn't cause my leg was broken. I had basically torn all ligaments in my knee uh, my arms were broken. My elbows were shattered. I had a piece of the glass from my helmet. It went through my chin uh, into and went through my mouth. So I had a piece of glass hanging from my chin up, touching Uh-oh. the bottom of my tongue. Oh my um, I road rat, you know, and so this is where I'm laying on the side of the road. I can't move. It's pitch black. You know, there's not <laughs> there's not lights on the side of the freeway up in Vail. Hmm. Um, and cars kept passing me. And so the majority, you know, of highways, when you've got the concrete, you know, divider in the middle, there's usually, you know, four to, depending on where you are, it could be three to five feet of space between the Mm. passing lane and the divider. And I was laying on the shoulder and anytime a car (laughs) would pass, I was praying for it after my adrenaline ran out. I just wanted to get hit and die. Hmm. You're laying there, and every time the car, this anxiety would come up, and I was sick of life at this point. You know, like, why am I riding at 3 in the morning, you know, like like a jerk? You know, like, I I blame this lady who cut me off for so long, but as we watched the videos and stuff, like, I didn't necessarily get cut off. You know, Mm -hmm. I just, in my head, that's what happened because I wanted to blame someone else. But in reality, it was me. Um... I think it was kind of fate. <laughs> I think it was supposed to happen. It was the start of when my trek just got really bad and cars wouldn't hit me. And I'm like, dude, like I just can't die, you know? And I want to at this mm. point, I'm depressed. Like I want to, I just want to go and this will be the easiest way and it won't be my fault. That's how it was justified to me. And yeah. 
by the grace of God, you know, here in Colorado, we've got the uh, the CDOT, which is the Highway Commission, um, Department of Transportation, and they're doing a shift change like four in the morning. And as they're doing the shift change and checking cameras, car drove by and a reflection went off my helmet. And they saw it and they're like, oh my gosh, there's a dude sitting right there. You know, there's a guy on the side of the road. And so then the ambulance comes and, well, police officer got there first. And he didn't really know what to do. They shut that part of the freeway down. He took me to the hospital. I was in a lot of pain. But the first thing they do when I get there is pump me up with morphine. Mm. Yeah. Which I loved. It's gone. Yeah, I, was, I loved it. Mm-hmm. My pain was gone. I couldn't move, but my pain was gone. Um, and I was there for a week. You know, they had to do a lot of tests, the concussion symptoms, which as a quarterback and hockey player growing up, you know, my head was damaged as it was. Um, so it that was kind of the first phase. Um, when I was living in Vail and I couldn't work, I got into selling pot. Uh, but not, you know, really the nickel and diming marijuana is I had this guy who was an old hippie who had this ridiculously huge outdoor grow up and didn't really have a market because he didn't really talk to people. So I was sending it through the mail to Georgia, hmm. um, you know, tripling my money. This is back in 2012, 2013, right. making a ton of money just by filling up a bag, vacuum sealing it and selling it. Hmm. And little did I know that my best friend in Atlanta who I was sending it to he had been watched by the police for a while and the last six months I sent him pot they were intercepting it and holding it as evidence (coughs) against me and I didn't know anything about this you know because I was still getting cash you know he was still paying for it uh so I that winter um had a breakdown finally like didn't have money for drugs didn't have anything i sold my skis and i just hopped on a train from vale and went out to california and didn't tell anyone where i was going i was having i literally in my mind said this is kind of it you know i'm done with living i'm sick of living um you know i've started making money and it's not taking away my hate it's not taking away my anger it's not taking away any sorrow um, like this is kind of it. I want to go out to California and end it on the ocean, you know, and that was kind of my plan. I was going to go out there and do that. And I took the whole train out there and I get to LA and have a great time, you know, meet some people, start hanging with some Australians, doing some things. And then this dude who was a believer, um, just very great guy who, loved Jesus and at that time me being so upset like I thought this guy like everything was great for him except for his loony you know religious views mm-hmm. you know I just was not having that are you addicted to heroin at this point no I hadn't gotten there yet okay. well. so I I went out to California this guy went up to Lake Tahoe and we got pulled over and that's when I first found out about the charges that were filed against me in Georgia. Whoa. Uh, we got pulled over, and I had a warrant out for my arrest in Atlanta, in California. So I'm on opposite sides of the country. Um, they ran my ID, and I had a charge um, for transportation of a level one narcotic through or uh, over state lines through U.S. mail. So at first, it was a federal offense. Um, which when you're dealing pot, you know, you don't really think about the re people mm-hmm. say they know the risk that's coming with it. But if I said, I, I thought that I was going to get caught, there's no, no way, not a, chance. not a chance. I'm dealing with my friend. Wow. I'm in the middle of Colorado. You know what Georgia yeah. cops are going to come and get me. Yeah. You know, it's pot and yeah. that's, that's how I justify it. It's just weed. Yeah. Uh, but you know, in Georgia, just weed. You can't is, just go to yeah. court and be like, "Hey, <laughs> no. hey come on, hey officer, it's just weed." Like <laughs> yeah, that doesn't no, work like that, you know. That. So um, I end up sitting in county jail in Northern California for a month, waiting to get picked up. And me being so ignorant, I'm like, "Yeah, they're gonna like Chris Brown me and put me on a plane, and fly me back," you know. Uh, uh-uh. They put me in a van shackled um, your wrists are shackled to your ankles and your ankles are shackled together and you're in a van so picture like a like a ford those big ford white vans 
uh, and you're in the back. So in the back, there's benches on each side that fit five guys on each side. You're in one of those? Yeah, and then it's a paddy wagon. And then in the front, in front of you, there is like a bench that'll fit three girls that's caged in. And then in front of them, there's cots so the drivers can take shifts and sleep and drive. Um, it's called PTS, and that's Prison Transportation Services, and it's hell, dude. Oh it is. My gosh. It is hell. It took me five weeks to get from Northern California to Georgia. Five weeks? You stop every four days at a county jail. You're literally driving throughout the country, picking up inmates and dropping them off. Oh, no. And... So you stop every four days. If you can't sleep sitting up, you're screwed. Like, you just – you can't. And you're in the back of the van with felons. You don't know what they did. You know, you've got – you've probably – you've got pedophiles. You've got murderers. You've got all these people. And I'm in there for dealing weed, you know. And so finally I get to Atlanta, go to court. They're like, all right, you're an addict. You know, I played that addict card. This is the first time that I was like, all right, I'm an addict. You know, that – that van ride was enough to be like, John, you were an addict, dude. Like, you don't want this to happen again. And the judge really went lenient on me, and I ended up getting five years of probation, which I ended up killing in half the time. Uh, but it didn't change my life. You know, I wasn't, mm -hmm. I wasn't actually trying to get sober. Um, what happened was, like, I'm back in Denver, meet this girl, and then six months later get her pregnant. So now I have a daughter on the way. Um, my addiction is still like, you know, I'm sober at this time, but like I'm not okay. Yeah. You know, you take drugs away from an addict. All you do is create a codependent until they figure out how to live life and, you know, become that human they need to be. Um, so and an addict still has the addict tendencies and the addict mindset. You know, you're still making the same mistakes that you would before, the same decisions, because you're still like you're still trained that way. So I wasn't really doing anything to change it in my head. Like, hey, I've got a daughter on the way. I'm going to get sober for her. And I stayed sober for a little bit. And then um, she was pregnant, my ex, and I had failed the drug test while on probation. And who would have thunk? Uh, they wanted me to go back to Georgia, send back, but I've got a life in Denver. Like, no, I can't do that. So I start taking Xanax again because mm -hmm. it's going to take away my anxiety. And I go up to Steamboat Springs skiing with some family and friends. And I get caught shoplifting ski goggles uh, in Steamboat Springs. They catch me red-handed. And they take me to jail. And I've got a warrant out from arrest in Georgia. And round two of extradition. Uh, so I hop in the van again and they extradite me back to Georgia. And this time it was only three weeks. Um, and once again, you're like, Hey, you know, like maybe I'm going to sober up now. So they let me out and I come back and I have a dad and I'm like, I'm getting sober for my daughter and I stay sober for a little bit. And then it's just the same old bullshit. I fall off the wagon. And at this time, you know, I'm killing it selling cars and I'm making a lot of money. You know, money is just, I'm making it hand over fist. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm super unhappy with my, with my girlfriend at the time and my daughter's mom, we were together solely because we had a daughter, mm. but we hated each other. You know, you, we were sleeping in the same bed, but we were always pointed the opposite way. Mm. You know, we just did not like each other because of the daughter. And I, um, just am upset one day and I literally went looking for any drug I could find. Nothing set it off. I just was so unhappy with mm -hmm. where I was in life and I was unhappy with her. And that's where I found heroin mm -hmm. just on the luck of a dime. I ran into someone who I could tell by the way he was moving on 16th street mall in Denver and he had heroin and I did it. And just like that, you get you shoot it up. Uh, the first time, no first time I smoked it, but it, took like you know watching these other people and how high they're getting i was like i need that so you know? right now though like let's talk about this for a second you started out as just normal upper middle class white kid having fun smoking weed and taking xanax pills in high school totally fast forward your life mm -hmm. this is you uh, just smoked, this is about eight years you ten, just nine years you just smoked heroin yep but at that 15, 16, 17, 
you never would have thought that 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 you would be in Denver doing heroin because you were just feeling good. Right. You know, after my accident, they had given me painkillers, mm-hmm. but it still wasn't. You know, it was cool. You know, I liked them. They made me feel good, but it wasn't what I craved. And, you know, the craving really came from, like, waking up every day and knowing I I wanted my Xanax. But right as I did heroin, all opiates, in my mind, are are heroin. You know, heroin, it's all an opiate, and it's all going to own you. Mm -hmm. If not taken responsibly or given to the wrong person. Uh, It took me a week before I used the needle. And... I don't so would you say when the the second you took that first hit of heroin you knew that was it? Like, the smoking, yeah. I so no, that's that's the crazy thing because in my head it's like yeah, well I can do heroin casually, like you know, but there's yeah, no but such I mean, thing like, as a felt, casual. It felt great. Yeah, it felt good, but I didn't like in my head it was like I'm just gonna do it today and I won't do it tomorrow and then yeah. the next day is I'll I'll do it again but I won't do it the next day that's and the, the next mindset. day, totally, and you know they say in alcoholism you know. One beer's too many and a million's not enough. It's just like that with heroin. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all the same shit. So the needle. Yeah. So yeah. I. What uh, was going through your head when you, when you like held that needle in your hand? I saw, like, I was with these two guys um, and they had gotten all excited because I saw the difference between the highs. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw smoking and. Yeah. Well, so that. I saw how I felt and then I see how they're essentially when you, you use a needle, you're essentially falling asleep. Your central nervous system's like shutting down. And that's why when you see a heroin addict, they're closing their eyes and they're leaning back and forth. Mm -hmm. And it feels like, you know, when you're really tired and you're sitting up and your head's just bobbing back and forth, that's essentially what they were doing. And I'm like, dude, like I need that. You know, they're, they're zonked out. They're cool with being homeless. You know, like I want to be that far out there. Mm. And so you get to the point now, and this is a weekend where you start to Jones for it and you start to want it and you start to crave it. And I wanted to see what they felt. And so ridiculously enough, they like lit a candle because they literally called it an event and, um, they shot the drugs into me. And I've said it before. I said it on the news, everything it's, you're not supposed to feel that good. Mm. Um, and they say, you know, they call that chasing the dragon. It's just you're never able to get that rush again. It's mm. adrenaline. It's euphoria. It's everything all in one. And you that just first time you just want it. Yeah, you want it back. And I was hooked. I was hooked. Um, and from that moment on, I was going to do whatever I could to make sure that I can, you know, get high. And so this is, you know, Ironically enough, like a couple of weeks after um, my daughter's mother leaves me um, and she moves back to California with my daughter because she knew that I was just not right. You know, mm-hmm. she's protecting my child, which I I used to resent her for that. But you can't have you can't have a little girl around a dad that's just not right. Mm-hmm. That can't help himself. You know, if Seriously. he can't help himself, how is he going to help a daughter or, you know, your partner? Um, and that's where like my life started spiraling out of control where I lost her. I lost my daughter. I lost my job. My family was like, no, dude, you know, they had enabled it so much. Cause they're yeah. like, all right, if I do this for him, he's going to change. If I do this, I'm, he's going to change. But there's a thin line between helping someone and enabling them, especially the addict. And for a family to kind of put their hand out and help that's normal but for a family to kind of say no like i can't do this anymore that's the most difficult thing for a parent or a sibling or whatever or even a friend to do and so my family finally you know my mom had done so much research and she's like we can't help him like we can't give him a roof you know like if he's gonna live this life we're not condoning it and he's gotta be by himself so this was december of 2014 i Looking here, I'm going to stop you. Looking back now, because it sounds so harsh, but I feel like that is, that is genuinely out of love. Like if they gave you a roof, like what, like, what are you going to do? I don't know. Looking back now, what are your thoughts on? on They had to, they had to, they, they had to. My mom, I have the most loving family I could ever imagine that I could ever have. They love me more than anything. 
they loved me so much that they had to kick me out because they knew that the chances were I was going to kill myself in their house using mm. drugs. And they couldn't they couldn't condone that. Yeah. And I had at the time, you know, it was like, fuck them. How are you going to ditch your son? But the way I look at it, like they weren't doing the drugs for me. I was doing these. I was making mm. that decision. You know, OK, all this stuff happened in my life, but no one was putting the needle in my arm anymore. Yeah. No one was pursuing the drugs. No one was buying them. No one was stealing to get money. You know, that was all me. You know, you don't do the drugs for someone, but you can give someone a place to use the drugs. You can mm -hmm. give someone money to get the drugs. Um, and when my parents threw me out, I was like, all right, fuck it. You know, I'm on the streets now. I was literally homeless. Um, I had one bag on me uh, of clothes that got stolen within the first day. I was super unprepared for being homeless. Like, you do not <laughs> know. You get out there and you're like, oh, whatever. Like, I was worried. And I was like, dude, where am I going to sleep? You know, and then you get high. This is where I started doing meth um, as well, because oh meth, gosh. when you're out on the streets, like, all right, now I don't need to worry about eating and I don't need to worry about sleeping. It was just kind of like, and that's why homeless people love methamphetamine is because it's like it cut all of these expenses out, mm. you know, because you want to be able to just buy drugs with the money you get. And so I was getting stolen from left and right because I'm very empathetic and what homeless people do, and I hate saying this, okay? I hate saying homeless people and grouping them in. But in my experience of being homeless, and people may think this is really harsh, and Nick and I were actually talking about this the other day, it's 99 out of 100, they're there because of addiction or alcoholism mm -hmm. or mental illness. It's not, you know, the person who had to quit his job to take care of his mom and they lost the house because it's for clothes and now he's homeless. Like right. you rarely hear that. And when you do hear that, you hear some like story about where they started a GoFundMe or, you know, they, mm -hmm. they were able to drag him out and get him a job and he restarted his life. Like that's not your 25 year old homeless vet. Mm. You know, that's like the dude who is, dishonorably discharged from the military and he's running yeah. and he can't go get a job and he can't do this and he can't do that. And what I, you know, there's always going to be homeless people or any person who has a big heart. There will always be big hearts, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to take advantage and get whatever they can out of you and milk you for everything. Because you're sick. Uh, you are sick. Yeah. You are. So, and you get so used to it. Right. So, okay. Just to reiterate this, because this is crazy. I mean, this is, an intense story. I know this is nuts I'm, a bit, I'm like captivated and <laughs> so once again for our listeners you started out as that kid just having fun totally doing Xanax I was now, taking Xannies you're homeless yep you're addicted to heroin you've lost everything mm -hmm. your daughter's gone your your girlfriend is gone baby, baby mama family it's, it's, family's gone mm -hmm. you're homeless no friends it's over mm -hmm. like you're done you're hooked absolutely but what I know about you <laughs> is that God wasn't finished with you. Totally not. And God had a plan for you. Mm -hmm. And that's where I want to go now. Okay. That's where I want to go. So basically you get to this point where you're alone like I was before. And I was in and out of jail just from doing stupid stuff. And in jail I had nothing. I had gotten in a fight in jail only thing you're able to have in solitary confinement is the Bible. And I started reading the Bible, which I had never done before. I had never picked up a Bible. Even before your addiction, even when you were a kid. Never really read the Bible. Right. If I okay. did, I didn't understand the first sentence, and I said, right. screw it, and put it down. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, even going to Sunday school as a kid, I wasn't paying attention. I was right. throwing paper airplanes at people. Right. Um, you know, I did not have faith. And I opened the Bible and then the craziest thing happened because I, I had this weird hope and they let me out for an hour that day, like an hour after I'd opened the Bible. And what happens, like there was a Narcotics Anonymous meeting that was coming in and they were letting me mm. go to this meeting. Whereas your first step is admitting that, you know, you're powerless over alcohol or drugs. Second step is admitting that like, you need a higher power to help you get through this. 
So that was to me. I was like, wow, oh, that's really weird. You know, yeah. like why is this what happening? What a coincidence! Yeah, what a what a weird coincidence. Like you know, and in my head, it was still too great of a thought to think like, okay, this is God saying like, yeah, all right, you dude, are, like, there. like yeah. open up, little man. Like I'm here. You know, but I couldn't comprehend that. Yet. That was yeah. way out of the realm of my thinking at the time. So I got out of jail at this time. Started going to meetings. I was meeting some really cool people. Started going to this awesome church up in Denver. And, you know, it was a non-denominational church, Flatirons. Pastor Jim is just, he's awesome. And there used to be an old pastor there named Scott. It was a huge church, but I was just meeting all these awesome people. And what was so wild about all these people, they were all really good people. They all had success in their own right, but they all followed Jesus. You know, like that's what everyone had in common. You know, you might have this black, white, you know, you got your Mexican, you got everyone, but everyone followed the same guy and everyone was happy and everyone was content with what they had. They didn't need anymore. Mm. And that's where I was kind of like, wow, dude, I'm like, I want that. You're like, what's up with this? So what is going on? Because this whole time, gosh, what I love about this is it's, it's so clear that this whole time, it's not about the drugs. It's not about the mistakes you made. There is a hole. There's a void, a void. in your heart. Right. And it's an entire story you're trying to fill that. Right. And you're getting you're getting to that point. You're searching. I'm getting there. And, you know, there's a misconception. You know, God is not there to get sober for you. He wasn't there to get sober for me. Like, I had to live what I lived. Mm-hmm. However, he was there to accompany th- me through everything. He was protecting me. He didn't let me die. Um, he let me see some things that they taught me what was going on, but he led me into the point of where I needed to be to kind of retrain myself over the last couple of years to remake who I was, to figure out what my foundation was. What's the base of John, you know, who am I, which I, I knew kind of who I was, but it's all about being comfortable and, and finding that comfort within your own skin. And, you know, I was led to that. And the 12 steps, you know, there's a lot of people, it's not a religious program. You know, they say we agnostics. However, the majority of people I'm with, you know, we go to church and we're believers in Jesus because he's, he's helped us. And we, we all have some sort of experience where we can open up and we've seen the light or we've, you know, had some spiritual awaken awakenings. And that, that really, that's the point of the 12 step is just to be, you know, get woke. You know, so crazy. You you're at this point where you're not like, oh, like I want to be blessed a million dollars, or I want, 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 want. So I'm gonna follow God. Maybe that'll work. You're just like, man, I, I just want to be happy. I just want to live. You know, at this time, at this point, I just I'm starting to see what life is about, mm-hmm. and I'm starting to see like, all right, dude, you got to be a dad. You know, but you can't do anything until you figure out what it is you can do for yourself to be happy. Because all of us, you know, if we're not able to help ourselves, nothing else is going to work. And I know when I'm sober, when I'm, you know, me, I'm doing what I need to do. I'm working, I'm going to school, whatever. Everything in my life aligns like a puzzle. It's not, it doesn't mean that there isn't some sort of complications along the way or some issues that you need to figure out. Right. But life is manageable. Whereas as an addict, when you're on drugs, like life becomes unmanageable. You can't. You, you try to control things that you cannot control. Right. And that's when your life starts to become chaotic. And the same, I, I can speak the same to my life. I, with My battle with addiction was much shorter lived than yours. Um, but, I, but I walked those miles. Right. And, and at the moment where I, I decided to follow Jesus, and that is what stopped my addiction, it wasn't that, oh, all of a sudden my life is perfect. Right. It's that, oh, I don't have to do this alone anymore. And... You're not alone. You're not anymore. alone. Yeah. You know, and that is what changed my life. I think the the thing is that people don't understand is he never forgets you. Mm. You know, he's always there. It's just about how much effort you're going to put into it. To it's like you and him. I as friends, you know, like I'm going to get what I give you. You're going to get what I, you know, it, it's, it's a friendship. If, if I don't look at you and acknowledge you, then I'm not. No, yeah. 100%. You're not going to notice someone's there. And it, it's, it's all about the acknowledgement. It's about the relationship. Right. And so that's really over the last couple of years, it's built. When did, when exactly did you, did you decide to start following Jesus? Uh, so November 2015 uh, was when I started going back to church consistently. 
about six months after that was when I started um, hanging out with people from church, um, getting into different clubs. It's when I started working my 12 steps. So there's AANA, but then there's Celebrate Recovery, which is your 12 steps, but in a Christian context. Mm -hmm. So that was in the middle of 2016, or excuse me, 2017. So about two years ago, I've been sober since December 19th of 2015. Um, so four and, years. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be four years in December. It was three years this past three December. Years. Okay. Um, and, you know, like moving down here, it, it's, it, I've been church hopping kind of, you know, because I'm I, up in Denver, I'd found this church and, you know, I loved all these things. But when I got down here, there's so many things that I want from a church and I've met so many different people. And like, I might go here one week, I might go here one week, you know, there, but everyone accepts you. Yeah. No one's really upset that I'm not at their church every Sunday. Yeah. You know, honestly, some people are like, man, like that's a great, man. I'm getting a lot out of it. And what I, I, there's Sundays where I'll watch three different services because everything's online now. Yeah. Right. You know, I'm like, all right, let's, let's do new life. Let's do this, you know? And, <laughs> and it's cool because every pastor, you know, ever offers something else. Right. And, you know, some pastors might be funnier and maybe I I'm down and I need to laugh or yeah. maybe I am just way too goofy. And I need someone to bring me down and right. humble me. And that's, what's so great about it is, is there's something for everyone. Johnny, if you, if you could talk to, to that, that that guy that's that's you talk to yourself at, at 15 doing xanax starting starting it out what, what what advice would you give i knew or, you know. or just just that that <laughs> guy who thinks he's thinks he's okay right now right and, and he's just doing some xanax just to you have know fun. what's funny is I, you say? I knew last night when we were laying in bed and I looked over at you, and I was like, "Oh, he's so cute." That's weird. We uh, say. I, uh, <laughs> That's not gonna make any I sense. I knew, I knew that this question was gonna come up, and as much as I hate it, there's not much you can say. Like, mm. that's a different perspective. You and I, uh, we know someone who's going through an addiction right now that we are associated with, right. and he sees an addiction from a firsthand perspective. And you can see as him being 16 years old, still. he knows what can happen and he's still doing what he shouldn't be doing. And it's a disease that can't be overcome by willpower. And I think if anything, you have to figure out how to convince these kids of that or a younger me, like willpower is not going to help you. It, it, willpower will help you in some sense. And discipline will, but it's a lifestyle change. You know, like I didn't become, I, I might've sobered up and went, had one day overnight, but it was years of training and building and growing myself. You know, like every day when I get on my knees and throw it up to God, like, you know, I'm still asking for tolerance and patience and acceptance because it's, 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 it's work. You know, this isn't, it's, it's work in the relationship and, I think the majority of people who suffer from addiction and want to get sober, they are overcome with exhaustion or they're surprised by how much work you need to put into it. And, you know, I had that defining moment where I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. I didn't so want to you, go through it anymore. You, you've got you've got to come to it yourself. You, you've got, you have you've got to. to look in the mirror and say, I, it's, I, I it's don't want this. It's all about you. It comes from within. Your mom could tell you to get sober. Or you should. You could do this. You know how many times? I bet you there's hundreds of times where I told my mom I was going to change. But until, until I wanted to do it, it wasn't going to happen. Hmm. You know? If, like, Let's change the question then because I think it's really good. If So if you could be a constant voice in your 15-year-old self's head, what are the things that you would be telling him? you could make this a lot easier. Mm. You could go left instead of right. That's your choice. It's your choice. You know, it's it's no one else's. I I at 15 I was so into people pleasing. You know, that was I I think there's any fault like God give gave me the ability to communicate with other humans, gave me this sales ability, just gave me this eccentricity. But I wanted to please and do for other people what I wasn't necessarily doing for myself mm. to make them happy. Yeah. And, you know, that led to so many issues in my life. And it's just all about being yourself. It really is being comfortable in your own skin. And it's difficult to get comfort. 
I don't know. A lot of people aren't going to experience that comfort until well into their life. And maybe in your teen years, you can't do it. But you see people grow out of this. I don't think you necessarily grow out of addiction. Like, I'm always going to be an addict. Right. I, mm. That's Yeah. It, it doesn't matter. You know, I haven't. I have myself used a touch a pill in over five years. Right. But I still think about it. Sure. A lot. You know, it happens. You're like, oh, like that feeling. You st- right. It never goes away. No. And I think there's definitely different situations where it might be an impulse. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, part of addiction and recovery is definitely training yourself not to jump to the conclusion of doing the drug. Right. You know, like, oh, I had a bad day. Like, I wish I could do this. Now I'm going to get high. Exactly. It doesn't. That's not my first thing. Like, I honestly can breathe now. And I'm like, all right, let's close your eyes. Let's get Zen, you know, and or, you know, call like I've got buddies to call. And that's the other thing Like, you need to have the right support. If you don't have the support, you're not going to do it. And so many people are like, yeah, you know, like in rehab, all these things. They don't go to meetings. They don't meet people. They don't go to church. If you're alone, like what are you going to do with your thoughts? If you don't have someone to talk to, if you don't have someone to lead you in the right direction, that's why in the 12 steps we have sponsors. You're going to get in your head and then you're going to go down. Right. A a sponsor isn't an old friend. It's a dude who's been there, who did it, who is successful, and he's going to lead you on this spiritual journey. Right. And so, you know, that is, you got to get out of self. And honestly, I think the most important thing in recovery and for any of these dudes out there, that are struggling with the addiction, go do something for someone else. Mm. Just go, whether it's volunteering, whether it is literally going up to a homeless dude on the side of the street and just talking to him or flashing a smile at some random kid who's upset with his mom. You know, it doesn't just do something that gets you out of your head that put a smile on someone else's because People are going to be grateful. And I think gratitude is just what makes this world go round. Mm-hmm. As much, you know, crap yeah. as we have going on, like, there's so many things that can be done. And you feel that gratitude. It's such an unspoken feeling. But, like, mm-hmm. just doing something nice for someone feels so good. Yeah. Well, and on top of that, there's like, you're so self centered. Not you, but when you're. I feel like when you're addicted and when you're just alone, you're you're in your. Yeah, it's how, your how do head. I feel good? How do I feel? Good? How, do how do I feel? I, like yeah. I, I hate myself. I am a loser. I. I I I I. I dropped the mic. He dropped the mic. It's loathing. It's you loathing. Know? And it it's all about that. And you know, I think the the last thing on my mind in the middle of my addiction when it was at its worst was how is this affecting my family, mm. you know, or my friends, you know, and. Until you look around and you're alone and the only people that are around you are other addicts who are going to take from you everything you have until you have nothing else to be taken from. Like that is it's an awful feeling and you're either going to hit bottom or you're going to climb up out of it. That's awesome. Well, Johnny, we're so grateful for you, man. And we're so thankful that you would come in and be vulnerable with us and talk about this. And you've had an incredible journey and just. I just want to say that I'm proud of you, man, and I'm glad to know you. Um, we do really thank you for being on the episode, and we thank you guys for listening, Yeah, um, folks out there. Luke, you got anything for him? Dude, I think you're an amazing guy. I think your story is incredible, and I, I was just just on the couch just in awe, like, oh, my yeah, gosh. Sorry we didn't say much. We were captivated. We were kind of just captivated <laughs> the whole time. Um, but, yeah, you guys, I mean, addiction is a, is a – crazy thing and and uh i just i anticipate just a lot of conversation coming out of this um because i think i think it's a it's a good thing that the talk of addiction and the talk of of mental health is something that is overlooked a lot of times um and it's a sucky thing so media is not going to cover it so hey if you yeah if you're listening to this and and it is you and, and you don't know who to talk to I would, I'd love to hear from you. I know yeah. Luke would. And 100%. We could always put you in contact with Johnny, so feel free to reach out. Um, hey, also, if you're enjoying our podcast, we do ask that you would go to iTunes and rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check us out at tggaragetalks.com, um, where you'll find information about us. You can also find a link to the main website of Training Ground and learn more about it. Um, and also, 
Make sure you follow us on Instagram because Luke does some cool things and takes some really awesome pictures. 100%. Um, at TG Garage Talks. But I'm Nick. And I'm Luke. And I'm Johnny. And we will see you guys later. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks.